creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk You're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I am your host, Andy J. Pizza. Today on the show, we have legends of the picture book world. Most of you know that my creative practice has kind of shifted over the past handful of years to be really primarily focused on kids' books. And so it is an absolute honor, privilege. Uh, I'm so I was so freaking pumped to have Mac Barnett and Carson Ellis on the show, two of my all-time favorite picture book makers. They came to on the show to talk about their new book, What is Love? And I can tell you with all the sincerity in the world that I can't think of any picture book that hit me on an emotional level like this picture book. The writing and and the illustration is off the charts. I am certain that this is going to be a classic. It, It hit me, man. It's a gorgeous book, and it was such a privilege to get the opportunity to talk to two of my creative heroes. If you don't know these people, you need to get to know them. Mac, the the amount of incredible work in kids' literature that he has done as a writer is off the charts. Sam and Dave dig a hole, the wolf, the duck, and the mouse, Leo, a ghost story. I mean, it's, it's, you probably, if you have kids, you've definitely read some of his books. Mac is uh, such a poetic and hilarious and playful writer. Um, actually, seeing him and John Classen talk at Icon in, I believe, 2016 was the, the thing that convinced me to go all in on picture books because the artistry and and humanity in which they approached their work made me think like, this is worth like giving your life to as as a career and practice. Um, So it was just incredible to get to connect with Mac. And then we have Carson Ellis, who has had an equal impact on me, massive influence on me creatively. I got to see Carson talk back in 2014 at Icon. And again, very similar it just made me fall in love with art all over again. Uh, the humanity and heart in which she approaches life is the heart of the true artist. And her work is absolutely incredible. Her books, Home and Do His Talk, are two of our kids' favorites and parent favorites, which is very rare in, in the picture book world. Uh, Do His Talk is in a bug language that you can actually translate quite easily into English. And it's just this brilliant thing. I I could go on and on and on and just absolutely fanboy out over these two artists, but I won't. I'll let you get to the interview. Thank you so much, Mac and Carson, for having this conversation with me. I hope we get to talk again. So inspiring. Um, Keep doing what you're doing. And go, everybody, go get this book, What is Love, for you. If if you don't have kids, doesn't matter. This is just a gorgeous piece of art and and literature, and and I'm so glad that it exists. Uh, So, okay. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mac Barnett and Carson Ellis. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, andyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. 
If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. want to say thank you because I saw both of you separately speak at Icon and in all honesty, both of those talks genuinely had a big impact on me. They, you know, both of them, I think really hit me in a similar way of just reminding me why I wanted to be an artist and, you know, having turned it into a career and all that kind of stuff. It's really easy to forget the playfulness and and remembering why this matters to you. And I think it was 2014, you were at Icon in Portland, Carson. Does that sound about right? That sounds about <clears throat> right. I don't actually remember, but it was a long time ago, so probably 2014. Yeah, it was a long time ago. And I just remember like being like, man, I gotta, I gotta play more. I got I've lost my way. And I just felt so inspired. And then I think I saw Mac, you talk with John. Uh, and I just remember that was probably a big part of how I shifted gears out of the client game towards the picture books. Um, because I remember just thinking you were talking about, uh, Sam and Dave dig a hole and just talking about all of the fun that went into it and the just playful thinking. And I remember just being like, this is like an art form. You can like pour your soul into this thing. And I, I just got so inspired. So I first just want to say, thanks for taking the time. Huge privilege to be talking about you. Ah, oh, that's nice. Thanks for saying so. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. By the way, I feel like I should say to our listeners, you might have heard a baby screaming right then. We're going to try to... I, I'm hoping he's going to nap in the next three minutes. But if there is any cooing or, or giggling... Oh, we, or hate, just really, we hate that. Yeah. Or just screaming. Or, or screaming. <laughs> He, he's, he's like, he's really excited and exploring the scream right now. So, nice. so I apologize, but we're going to try it. We're just going to try to keep this professional you guys froze. and, and, and worthy hmm. of the forum where we are, but and I might fall down on the job. Hey, uh, any way I can get you guys on the show, I'm for it. And, you know, hopefully all of us being picture book makers, we're okay with some children around. Um, so I, I know I am. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask you about is my six-year-old said something the other day that really reminded me of your TED Talk, Mac, and I wanted to just share it with you as like a little premise. We went to Portland last summer, like right in that window when people were like, I think it's okay to travel. And we did it like right away, which I'm glad we did. And uh, we got one of those kind of cliche quintessential Portland magnets that has Bigfoot on it. And so the other day she, she grabbed it off the fridge and she was like, dad, is Bigfoot real? And I was, I was thinking, oh, she's like scared or something. And I was like, no, Bigfoot's not real. And she's like, I think he is. I think mermaids are real too. And I was like, oh, I guess she's kind of just in that zone still. That's cool. And she's like, yeah, no, none of my friends at my school believe in anything. And I'm like, it's so boring not to believe in anything that's made up. 
And I thought, <laughs> that's such an oxymoron of like knowing it's made up and like choosing to believe. And I thought that was really cool. And it really reminded me of your TED talk about the role of artists lying in this truthful way. And I wanted to just say, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning to continue to lie to children? Uh, with oh, all of your yeah. fictional work. <laughs> uh, it is very hard to get me out of the bed in the morning, yeah. first of all. So not much. However, uh, no, I love that story. Uh, because, like, the, like the, the term that we call for like kids playing that way is like, it's, it's so perfect, right? We make believe mm. that, that kids make themselves believe. And you hear that in what your daughter said to you. And in fact, like, she asked you, you said no, and she just didn't even, she didn't even absorb that. She was like, you're wrong. My friends are wrong. I think all this stuff is real. She still has the capacity to make herself believe these things. And I think that kids are so much better at doing that. We kind of lose that. As adults, we can do that. I, when I read a novel, I'm making myself believe this. When I look at a painting in a way that's, it's not the same way as thinking of a fictional world this way, but I'm still making myself believe. I'm making myself believe in this world, this way of looking at the world, this this artist's vision of the world. Uh, fiction, art, it it makes we we make ourselves believe in this stuff. Um, but kids can do it without an artwork there, but it makes them really good at looking at artwork. Yeah, that makes sense. Sense. What what about you, Carson? What? I know that you you like to make stuff, but what is it about this kind of art form of fiction that kind of makes you continually go back to it? I don't I don't know. I mean, I think the thing that drew me to it um, it's a combination of things, but the main thing, not to be disappointing, was probably not that I am obsessed with like the whimsy of childhood. It's really more that. At some point, as a young, formative, like burgeoning artist when I was a teenager, I came in contact with some picture books that seemed to be the most successful example I saw of a combination of prose or poetry and visual art. And at the time, you know, I was like a teenager who was writing my bad teenage poetry and drawing my um, goofy teenage art. And I was like, where do these things combine in the art world? Like, how, where, how do you use these things together in a way that's like successful and satisfying? And the first book that I saw that really made me think of that was Outside Over There by Maurice Sendak, which is a very weird book that kids love. Like my kids love that book. I don't know why. I love it. I don't know why. It has just a kind of incredibly beautiful, artful mystique to it that spans this incredibly broad audience of people. And so I think that was my original, you know, I was like still a kid, a teenager when I started obsessing about picture books. And then I've spent my whole life thinking about them and reading them and wondering why I love them so much. So now as an adult and a parent, I see them from this other perspective and I do come at them not just as like an awesome opportunity to write poetry and draw pictures to go with it and then find someone to pay you to do that and publish it. I also see it as an opportunity to connect with kids who are such unique readers and adults who read so differently and how to sort of bring those two very different readerships together to have like a co collaborative reading experience. I think a lot about that sort of thing as a grown-up. The make-believe thing I think is like it's just kind of drilled into books, but like you're telling that story about your daughter with Bigfoot and mermaids, it is an opportunity for kids who are often in this like really liminal place where they're like, it's real, but it's not real. God, I wanted to tell this incredible story about Santa that happened yesterday with my kid, but I'm afraid it might be spoilers for any kids out there listening. <laughs> Santa's sensitive. I'm not going to go there, but Kids can really believe and not believe kind of at the exact same time, be like completely convinced of the existence of something and not. And so when you read a book with a kid who feels that way, it is like an incredible experience as an adult, I think. I, I think that liminal space you're talking about, Carson, where you're like, you believe and you don't at the same time, right? Like there's a, there's a fundamental like flexibility and uncertainty to that worldview that like lets you change your mind. And kids are just changing their minds all the time that's the developing brain 
adults, we get very uncomfortable changing our minds. And I think that you like to get in that space, you do have to be like softened up with something beautiful with, with a, with a beautiful poem or a beautiful song. And that can get your brain into that liminal space where like some change is possible. Or just the awe with which we watch our children's brains when we read them books. Like we, we see the way they take in that information and we see the way that they approach pictures and prose without much of a context for it because they're little. And we're just like, oh, that's amazing. Oh, I wish my brain could do that. And so we sort of allow our brain to do that a little bit with them in a way that we wouldn't normally, I think. Real quick, and we'll get into this probably a little bit later too, but you talking about Maurice Sendak and his kind of weirder books. And I know that both of you, I, I believe, have a, have a taste for weird kids' books. And I wonder if like, well, I wonder, I'd love to just hear your talk on the frustrations around possibly the modern times with kids' books. And maybe it's always been like that. I just don't know any other thing. Now, I love traditional storytelling. I really do. It's my jam. But also like, really weird stuff. And when I was a kid, I remember those weird things just being like getting stuck in me in a way that, you know, normal stuff didn't. And I just wondered like, do you think it's something about how grownups have such a hard time make believing? Whereas we know we can serve up something to kids where they're like, I don't know what that is, but man, I loved it. I want, you know, what do you think it is that I, I maybe first, the first part of that question is, do you feel like there's a massive resistance in the kids media space to some of that weirder stuff? Um, yes. And why? Yeah. <laughs> We're like, uh, just be done with the question so we can jump yeah. in and rant. <laughs> We're so mad. <laughs> well, I think that like, I think there is a lot of resistance and I actually think that in literature and art for adults, the bizarre or the challenging or the experimental exists and is valued and rewarded and in fact is considered essential to literature. I think the reason it gets pushed out of kids' books is it, that's adults exercising control over what they think kids should read or would like and doing so with a sort of diminished view of, of childhood and children. <laughs> So I think that like I think that maybe we think like kids aren't smart enough to handle this. Uh, we think that that we need to teach kids. You take it. You take it a little bit, Carsey, right now, while I uh, give Rafe a sock to play with. Um, will we get to see Rafe? Will I get to see my favorite baby? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll put him up. I'll bring him up. I'll bring okay. him up. All right. So I think part of what Mac was probably starting to say was that. I think there is this kind of convention or just this, this idea that children's literature should somehow be a teaching tool. And if it's not actively, like if you haven't written a book that has like a message embedded in it, at the very least, whatever message you can find in it should be like something that teaches kids to be better people in the world, which is a really unfair, first of all, it's like a horrible uh, standard to apply to any art, right? No matter what. That's crazy. So kind of overly righteous. But also, I think it's the wrong introduction to art and literature for kids. Like, we don't only take in arts and culture that edifies us. We watch, like, horror movies and read trashy novels because they make us happy and they make us think about things we don't want to think about and or they keep us from thinking about things we don't want to think about. So I think this idea that... A, kid, a, a book either teaches a lesson or if there isn't a lesson, you should be able to point to a way that kids can learn something good from it. It's kind of lame and it's really pervasive. I do, on the other hand, feel like I have been allowed to make some very weird books and I'm really grateful for it. I just happen to think I have an editor who lets me make books that... I don't even know if she likes or gets them, you know, but she's awesome and she's really supportive. And I also would say, like, just in terms of sort of the history of picture books, that this has always been a thing. Ursula Nordstrom, the legendary children's book editor from, you know, the early part to the mid-late part of the 20th century, who championed all of these weird books, was, you know, brought Shel Silverstein into the 
kids' book world and published Harriet the Spy and famously made Maury Sendak's career, she had to fight really hard against a lot of gatekeepers to do that. Margaret Wise Brown also. So many people, we couldn't even begin to list all the game-changing people that Ursula Nordstrom championed, but she was fighting against the same conventions that we're kind of railing against right now. They've always been there. There's always been this sense that art and literature for kids should be like wholesome or easily understood or that's right. Yeah, we we think that maybe the '60s were a uh, more flexible time with kids' books, and in some ways, maybe they were. But basically, it's the books that she fought for, and those authors and illustrators fought to get out authentic, real art that survived. They've survived the decades, uh, and we think that that maybe everything was like that. But if you went back, there'd be a lot of bad books for kids published in the '60s and '70s, just as there are a lot of bad books for kids published today but mm-hmm. hopefully the good ones that people fought for survive and there would be a lot of librarians being like i won't have outside not outside over there uh in the night kitchen in my library because i can see like a child's tushy in it but there's always been that kind of like you know puritanical pushback about all kids kids picture books and i will just say that my my the Bigfoot kid, my six-year-old daughter, one of her all-time favorite things in any medium is the part in your book, Home, where you can see the kid's butt. She just freaking loves that. Um, so Andy, I, I, knew, I know that. That's why I put it in. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I knew that that would be every single kid's favorite part of that book. It absolutely <laughs> is. She's just like, just look at it. Look at that. It's uh, a and fun. I love it. It's so funny. Um, and I, and I think glad. you made an incredible point, too. I was sitting in a, uh, an older building that was just absolutely gorgeous with a buddy of mine. But they turned into a coffee shop, and uh, and I was like, man, you ever just feel like, what happened to why? Like, why do we make all these cheap buildings and this cheap crap? And he's like, I don't. He's like, I don't think it was any different. I think those are just the ones that have stuck around. And he said the same goes for the you know oldies radio. It's like it's not like they had better music back then. These are just a collection of all the stuff that's stuck around. And I guess you know I hadn't really uh, applied that kind of thinking to kids' books. Um, and a lot of those weird things are the are the ones that stuck around. Um, so I want to talk to you about your new book. And I have some stuff to say about it. I just really love it. I got a, I got to see an early copy of it uh, digitally. So, But first, could you just tell us a little bit about your new book, uh, What is Love? Sure. So, yeah, it's a picture book um, that... that opens with a boy asking his grandmother the question of the title. What is love? And she's really old, so he thinks that she'll know. But she says, I can't tell you. If you go out in the world, you might find an answer. And so he goes out and asks all kinds of people, carpenters and fishermen and actors. And and he asks some some people who aren't people, cats and dogs. Uh, This question, they all give different answers. And I think if you spend any time around kids, you know, they start, they ask you really big questions <laughs> that, that are really hard to answer. What is love? What happens after we die? Is there a God? Is Bigfoot real? Is Bigfoot real? <laughs> the important <laughs> questions, yeah. The hardest one to answer. <laughs> and and these are like, these are questions that, that I think artists sit down and think about when they make art and have for thousands of years. And, and... Um, when I was a kid, I was really bugged by, by the question, what is love? Like, I, adults would talk about love all the time. I got really worried. Like, I, I was really nervous that I couldn't articulate what it was or put it into words. And I was like, how will I know if I love someone? What's this falling in love people are talking about? How am I going to know if that happens to me? Uh, and I, was just, I would just ask adults all the time, like, explain this to me. Just please explain this whole thing to me. And they couldn't. And it was so frustrating. And so, so I wanted to, to write about that, write about asking that question and write about the frustration, uh, the, the limits of language. Because I think all picture books are about the limits of language. Like Carson said, it's, it's a synthesis of text and image. And, and you try to create something more than, than just the words or just the pictures 
could do. And, and in this case, I'm so lucky to work with Carson because it's about the, fail, the failure of language to get at these abstract concepts and, and ultimately a, a triumph of the visual. Hmm. Yeah. Segway to Carson. <laughs> Passing the torch. That was very subtle. Um, very subtle. <laughs> Good it. transition. <laughs> Yeah, like what Max said. <laughs> um, and I, I do think it's about this, this kid goes on this journey. He asks all these people this impossible question. Everyone has a different take on it because as we know, there's no answer to that question because love is not, it, first of all, it's not romantic love. It's not familial love. It's not love of a concept, love of a nation. Like love is all of these things. And sometimes it's like really nuanced things in combination, you know? So nobody can answer his question, of course, and he's frustrated. And then he comes home and we, we like to think that we've answered the question in the book, just sort of visually and sensorily. I'm not really saying that right, but I think, but I think he does find his answer. And his answer is that it's a complicated collection of things. It's a place, it's a time of day, it's a person, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that you know when you're feeling it, and it is an impossible thing to define. Um, so that's kind of the point of the book. Like Max said, it's a book that reads a bit like a fable, and it's full of metaphors, very fun and easy to illustrate because of all these very visual metaphors. But in the end, there's sort of this turning point where you realize that the metaphors only go so far to answer the question. Okay, yeah, that, I think that was a, a great summation of, of the book. And I, I just, before I ask this next question, I want to say two things. The first thing is, as I was reading it, there was a part uh, that I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's a part towards the end when I felt like what the turn is and how it's, how it's coming together that I just was literally verbally here in my studio going, Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, I just felt it, right? I was like, oh, man, oh, here it comes. Um, and so, Andy, you can feel free. You can spoil away, I say, too. It's fun to talk okay, about like yeah. the, the construction of these things and how we make it, and, and I think it's useful. So feel free to give away specific moments. Okay, I will, want. and I, you know, I know it's a picture book, but I want to respect how you guys feel about it. So, I, yeah, once, he, once it turns and he go, goes out on this giant journey to find what love is, and the second, the, the fir, where the page hits where you know he's going home, you're like, oh man, he's gonna know what it is. He's gonna as soon as he gets home after this journey and this, you know, the obstacles and the trials of all of that and wrestling with it. As soon as I hit that part, I was like, oh man, I was just hit with a, a wave of emotion, and I just absolutely loved it. And that was the first thing I wanted to say. And the second thing, just real quick before I ask the question, is, you know, in my personal journey as a storyteller and artist. I spent probably the first 25 years of my life loving the weird stuff most. And then about for the past, like, you know, 10 years, probably I've just really felt like I need, I, I didn't do it on purpose, but I fell really in love with the traditional storytelling. I just fell in love with, you know, what this is in some ways. Yeah. It's like poetic and abstract in some ways, but in other ways, it just really does what a good story does. And, um, and so that, I just wanted to lay that groundwork of how I, felt about it, approached it. But one thing that, um, so this is very much my jam. And I thought this is also not exactly what I would expect you. This your, Is this your first book together? Okay. Yes. But I know you guys have known each other for a long time, it seems. Um, and uh, it's, you know, this kind of earnest classic book is not exactly what I, I was pleasantly surprised. Why did you, what? Why is this your first book together? You know, what, what made you make those choices? Oh, Andy, there are like three different things I want to talk about from what you just <laughs> said right now. There's like we three fruitful avenues. Time. But first of all, thank you. Yeah. That's so oh, good nice. one, Carson. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, the book is so good. It's I, honestly, um, my obsession with story and my, and getting, you know, a couple of picture books in and, and got some other ones in the works that I'm really excited about. I've actually, I was talking to my editor at Chronicle and I said, you know, who do you, who do you think I should talk to about story? And she's like, you got, you should talk to Mac and Carson about this and you should see the new book. And when I read this book, I was like, 
this is what I want. Picture books. I want some of this stuff in, in the picture book world. So thank you. That's I really absolutely sweet. love it. I think that I think that I I've always loved weird, bizarre picture books and, and I think I write books that a lot of people think are weird and bizarre, but I, I'm never I'm never interested in being weird for the sake of weirdness and, and I think I like these books because they speak to something authentic in me. In the Night Kitchen was huge for me as a kid. That's a such a weird book full of dream logic. It's the feeling of being awake at night. And I hadn't I hadn't seen anybody say like <laughs> I, I hadn't seen anybody show like, hey, that weird way that your brain works at night, my brain works that way too. And here's a book that feels that way. And it I, I just felt known. I, I didn't feel I didn't feel alienated by the bizarre. I, and, and if you don't understand it, if you don't feel that way, it, I think it can feel off-putting and strange to come into contact with a bizarre. I get it. I get people who want something sort of digestible and easy in their literature. It's just, it's just never been something that I'm looking for. Um, I, I think that the tradition of kids' books is a tradition of experimentation, and I think traditional story forms, fable, folk tales, and, and I think this book owes a lot to those forms. Folk tales are bizarre. Fairy tales are bizarre. Myths are bizarre. They aren't classically three-act structures. They don't all follow Freitag's triangle. That's one way to tell a story. It's a perfectly good way to tell the story. I, I just don't think it's the only way, and it's not the only way that we've told stories to kids, right? Folk tales, fairy tales, myths. Parables. These are stories that we have used throughout history, at least in part, as as ways to talk to children. And and fairy tales, I think, are held up as a as a as a model of of traditional storytelling. They're so deeply weird, and the best parts of fairy tales are the little knobs and edges and and rough patches that that haven't been sanded off. Those are the parts that that we keep thinking about. So. I, I don't know. I think that like my view of literature, I like I, I want to have an expansive one. My my view of literature has room for those didactic books Carson was talking about on the shelf. The problem is that the people who are most excited about didactic fiction don't want room for the bizarre on their bookshelves. And I, I don't want to limit what kinds of stories are available to kids. Yeah. I think also, you know, publishing is a business. Obviously, the bottom line is the thing that drives it. And so, and it's the same, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not all that different from books for adults in that when people want, when, when in the kids publishing, kids literature publishing world, they're looking to make a blockbuster, they want it to reach as many people as it possibly can. And in order for that to be the case, you usually have to take out those bits and knobs that Mac was talking about. People are usually kind of trying to smooth those out. Like, this all makes sense to me, but why this weird detail that just seems to come out of nowhere where, like, Mac was just visiting and we were reading Russian folktales because <laughs> that's how we party. And <laughs> they are so, everything about them is so weird. So little of them makes sense. Some of them seem to follow more like a fairy tale structure that's recognizable, but there will be a bit or a bob, like the one that we were reading. It was like a guy found a burning head on the side of the road. He put it in a bag. He gave it to his daughter. She ate it. She became pregnant. It's like, what is who? Why? Why did you write that? Where did that come from? What oral tradition, if that's how that came, like what bizarre game of Russian, like 17th century telephone resulted in that story. But that's part of what makes it so amazing is wondering like why you would tell that story and why you would tell it the way that you would. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, like I, I think people want to make the books that they think the most possible kids and the most possible grownups reading to kids will not feel alienated by. And I think people do feel alienated sometimes by art and so when you make books for kids, it's this weird tightrope of like making the book that feels really authentic to you, the thing where you feel like you are truly expressing yourself and doing the thing you want to do. And also making this incredibly populist piece of art because it's for 
it's not even for any particular audience. Like it's for kids, but it's for also any single person who might happen to read a book to them. So you're, you're trying to find that weird balance. Oh, you know what the question was though? It was why we made this. <laughs> Go wherever you want. I'm eating it up. <laughs> okay, cool. But um, I do want to know also why, yeah, why, why when you two came together, was this the book that you made? So Mac and I started talking about making a book together. I think we maybe met, which was a long, it was maybe like 15 years ago or something. We have the same literary agent, Steve Malk, who we adore, who I think knew we would be friends. And so he connected us. And at that time, Mac was working on a book for McSweeney's called The Clock Without a Face. And so it was like an armchair mystery kind of book, like Masquerade. And the idea was maybe that I would illustrate it. We talked about it a little bit. And it turned out that it was just like, kind of over my head, like I was like, I don't think my brain does like intricate mystery type things. So that was, we met talking about that book and we have since talked about so many books and working on them together. I think the last one we talked about before this book was a really, really weird book because it was about a kid who like turns into a sheep and then like stays a sheep forever. It was, it was much more like the... <laughs> Russian what you're folk tale. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember why that didn't happen. A lot of the time it's like we're hanging out. Mac reads me a manuscript. I'm like, oh my God, I have to illustrate that. That's so amazing. And then it's just like I have four books on my plate and so it just doesn't happen. So this is actually, this manuscript got sent to me, first of all, through the proper channels, you know, not just us drinking wine and reading manuscripts. One thing also that's, that's, just missing from that story is when Carson and I met, Carson is like, she's my favorite living artist. And oh. like it was, when we met, I was like, I was very nervous, a little back footed because I, I like truly, I, I had Carson's artwork on my wall in college. Like her writing, her illustration, her fine art, all these things, they like, they speak so directly to me and always have, um, and, and have before I knew her. So I was, I'm so glad that we're friends. You, you hope that about somebody whose art means that much to you because I saw like a similar worldview and, and set of references or, or just set of just things that, that make me get excited. Uh, and yeah, one of we've we've been, just been wanting to do a book forever. Um, and and the fact that this manuscript, which meant a lot to me, also meant something to her, and that that she wanted to take it from a manuscript to to a book to a story. Because you know, when you're done writing a picture book, your your job writing a picture book manuscript is to to finish an unfinished thing. It's it's not anything when you're done. You you hand it to somebody who takes it. I was going to say who finishes it, but takes it a little further down the road because it's still not done until an adult reads that book out loud to a kid, right? The, the book is finished every time it's read. It's finished and refinished a million times. Um, and, and that adult, is, if they're doing a good job, is, is trying to tell the story that that kid needs to hear that time. And that's the volume of your voice the pace at which you turn the pages, how long you linger over the pictures, um, those decisions that you make as an adult reading aloud to a kid, you're also a collaborator in that story. And then finally, of course, is, is the reader, the kid at the end, who is also a collaborator because, because we try to leave questions and gaps and ambiguities that, that a kid can come in and bring their intelligence and experience to the book and and fill it in and fill in those blank spaces and decide what a story means. Yeah, and I will say also that this, I think this was the book we finally managed to collaborate on because when I read the manuscript, I just like burst into tears at the end. And I was like, I think like that almost never happens. It's probably a good sign that I'm gonna be pretty excited about working on this book the whole time if it was that moving on the first reading. And then when I got Carson's sketches back, I then reburst into tears looking at <laughs> the book anew. So many tears, Andy. So uh, many tears. Honestly, I, I can vouch for that. Uh, I had the same feeling. And uh, it's gorgeous. And I, I do really want to see 
the kid that turned into a sheep and never turned back. Uh, it's a sheep, right? That what it was. That's right. Okay. I definitely want to see that weird book, but I am really happy that you, this was your first official collaboration because it, it is incredible. And I, and I, and I hope that you are both super proud of it. Cause I, I was kind of blown away. I was expecting something super cool. I didn't know that it was going to be what it was. And the great part too, is that the, you know, visually it also, I mean, both it's got the poetic side with the little bits and pieces that haven't been, you know, rounded out and smoothed out, but then also visually, you know, things like leaving in a sports car and stuff like that, that, I, that took me by surprise. I've, there's tons of like visual stuff that kids can dig into and, and obsess over. And I, I just absolutely love it. I, I wondered, um, I like to get sometimes borderlines on pedantic because you can't always get in there. Um, but I love to talk about kind of the, you know, the nuts and bolts of the process in terms of, was there any particular thing either in the writing of the manuscript or creating of the art? Is there any particular creative moment that was a break for you that was like, oh, I'm really excited about that? I mean, for me, like those those things come early, and the thing that got me really excited about this, and and I I'm still really excited about it. And when I tell Carson about it, she when I told her, she was very excited about it. However, I'm conscious of the fact that it could be really unexciting to our listeners. So that's that's <laughs> our podcast gold. <laughs> well, just like the, the breakthrough for me, when I, I I wrote this book in. Italy. Uh, I was on a trip with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. It's the trip that I proposed to her on, so I was definitely thinking about love on that trip. But we were going from town to town, and, and something I love about Italy is they're all, you know, the history is of these cities and republics that are so different, culturally so different, linguistically even different, and they all had different metaphorical frameworks to express wealth or love or beauty. So in Genoa, which is a port city, like the the rich mansion was adorned with clamshells, like on, on uh, everywhere. There were statues of clamshells, um, uh, um, sort of adorning the stairs, and and that was the way that you expressed wealth and power and success. And then if you go to Florence or you're traveling around Tuscany, it's going to be much more rooted in the land. It's going to be sheep or or fruit or fabrics and. The way that just all around Italy, people were trying to get at the same ideas, but using totally different <laughs> symbolic structures to get there. I was like, that's, that is so interesting. That's so, that's, that's, that's so fun. It's so cool. It, this could be, this could be a great way. And, and especially because of the, the history of, of allegorical painting in Italy, I, I think it just made sense to me as a, as a picture book idea too. And uh, just real quick, uh, for those who haven't read the book, can you just explain how that relates? Because by the way, that question that I just asked, that's exactly the kind of answer that I was looking for. I love <laughs> that. Oh, it makes so much sense. And I and the, the parallel of the book of these people using what they have. Like, I don't want to take, steal your thunder. Can you just? Oh, no, sure. Right. Yeah. So that's how the book works. So when, actually, Carsey, why don't you take that? Because I'm going to give Rafe my hat again to chew on. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm, what Mac wants me to say. But oh, I you're going to, you're just going to say like the, like the fisherman <laughs> says that love is a fish. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's that thematically each person that that kid comes to the fisherman says that love is a fish and each person that that kid comes to comes to it from their own kind of like cultural inner world. You know, the actor says that love is applause. The carpenter says that love is a house. And so they do, they feel like these little kind of guilds. Is that a good thing to say? It's, yeah, that's, that's exactly, that's right. <laughs> I love it. I, that's such a good answer. What What about for you, Carson, just in the making the art? Was there any particular page or piece where you're like, oh, I love it. Just where it like whatever you like about making happened. I think the very first even sketch I did for the book is the fisherman holding the fish. And I just always loved that sketch. And I love that illustration. And Mac once noted that like the cadence of the book is like this kid kind of walks through the book being like, 
hey, actor, what is love? And the actor says, love is applause. And he explains it why. And the kid is like, that makes no sense to me. He's like, you don't understand. And then he goes on to the next person and gets an unsatisfying answer. And it's the way that it's paginated, it's sort of like each person's got a spread. But the first person he comes across is the fisherman. And the fisherman's got his own spread. And then his sort of explanation is on the next page. And I didn't even maybe realize that I had done that. But like I, I think it was just sort of an intuitive decision I made, it, partly to kind of like set the rhythm of the thing. Like now we're with this kid on his journey. Like let's get used to this idea that he is. This is kind of the this is the rhythm of it. But also just that I loved that fisherman, and I wanted him to have a whole page to himself, like snuggling this gigantic fish. So that was one I really loved. And then there's another one about there's the the main turning point in the book. I think Mac probably is the is the spread with the poet. Yeah. Because he finally comes across a poet, and of course a poet's got a lot of ideas about what love is. He's just got so many ideas, and at this point the kid is so fed up. Also at this point the kid is not even a kid anymore. This has been like a long journey. And so the, originally it was just like the poet was like, I have so many ideas, I'll write you this long, long list. And the kid's like, no thanks. And that was just the illustration was like the poet with the list. But then I made it two spreads so that that page turn, his long list goes on to the next spread. So you turn the page, and there's the list just trailing off, and the kid is just walking into the sunset like, I'm done with this journey. I haven't learned what I need to learn. And the kid at that point is done with the book, right? Because like the poet is doing what I have been doing up until that point, which is he's like, I'm going to give you a list of metaphors that goes on for pages. And the kid just says, enough, I'm done reading this book. Like what? I'm walking like, out of this book. <laughs> yeah. And that's the moment where, I mean, it, the, the next thing is the, the spread that you talked about, Andy. And, and it is sort of like, at that point, I think the trap door opens, right? We finish with language. And what you described as feeling is exactly what we wanted because that's what you're going for with a, a picture book is... <laughs> to combine the words and the pictures to create an affective experience. It's, it's not the text. It's not even the pictures. It's the, it's the affective experience, um, the emotional experience of this moment. Like, what, are, are you feeling that this is a return to home? Are you seeing these sights? What is your mood? What are you understanding? And hopefully the distance between the reader and the kid, the speaker, is, is really starting to shrink now. And you're like... Oh, I'm going home. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I think my favorite spread is the final end papers, which is like, there's this point where I stopped. The text still exists, but the, the text is deliberately, the most important things are happening when the text is, is most circumscribed. I am, I am way pulled back on what I'm giving you in words. And at, at this time, this is the most important turn in the story. That's deliberate, but then... I basically had a point where I thought the story should end or, or did end, not should. And, and Carson took it one more. And the final end papers are actually very narrative and reflect the opening end papers, which show this boy, still a boy, and his grandmother and his dog out in a field. And now, and, and it's daytime, it's, it's morning, and now it's night. And the grandmother is older, the boy is a man, the dog is older. Um, and we just spend time with them in this moment after this journey. And I felt like I find that so emotional. And it was, it was really surprising to me that, that that moment was there. And it was really like obvious and important that that moment should be there. And it was, and it was just a, like, it was a, a brilliant piece of bookmaking and storytelling from Carson. Oh, Mac. That's sweet. <laughs> Thank you. That's really, I love it. And I, uh, and I caught, I kind of felt like uh, the poet is definitely like a, a funny take on Mac. That's what I thought. Like, this is an author writing and I kind of got that feel, but I hadn't fully taken yeah. away like a big part of that turn after when he's like done with the book and he's going back to his thing that just instantly reflects 
and it's I'm getting in the weeds on the book. You have to read it to get into it, but it just makes you instantly return to yourself and be like, oh, you can't be told by other people. It's the stuff that you have experienced and um, yeah. that I hadn't caught. I know, Andy, we issue. love getting into the weeds so much, so like stop us when we are. Oh, but yeah, no. that's right. I, th- I think the worst thing for a picture book author is to be too in love with their words, with their text. <laughs> on a sentence level... You could be the most brilliant, most talented writer who, who writes beautiful prose that, that makes for a terrible picture book text. If you're good at prose, you'll be better as a picture book writer, but it's not the most important skill. I, I, I think that that's, that's what's going on with, with the poet right there. Is that, I think it's that, na- like, I have this deep skepticism toward language and am always prone to roll my eyes at the part of myself that that loves the sound of me talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate Which to Which is kind of a built-in feature of any writer, of anything, you know? Like you both, I mean, I feel like the best writers like need to love the sound of themselves talking enough to actually write because if you really hate the sound of yourself writing and talking, then you're not gonna get over the hump you need to get over in order to put your work out into the world. But yet also feel cheapish or chagrined by it. (laughs) It's a good balance to have. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that um, I I don't think that the end papers were in the ebook version that I got to see. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Oh, okay. And I feel like, um, at least in some of your own books, Carson, that a lot of your end papers are just a color. Yeah. Um, So I thought that's interesting uh, as a choice. Yeah, I don't usually like to illustrate the end papers. Sometimes that's like a, a pagination issue. Like when I'm uh, mocking up the book, I'm like, oh, if these were separate endpapers, I would have a few more pages. Like it'll just work out like that. Like I'll, yeah. it, I'll be able to make it work a little better. But I also often feel like I want the calmness of a solid color there instead of another space in this book to fill with art. It doesn't always appeal to me. In fact, it often doesn't. In fact, one of my books, and I think it's home, they're not separate endpapers. They're printed endpapers, but they're printed in a solid color. And I remember the art director being like, really? This seems really weird. Like, this is this opportunity to put something here. And I was like, I just really don't want anything there. The book is full of art. I want peace and quiet there. But with this book, I felt like, I've told Mac this, but I feel like that last illustration, which nobody knows what we're talking about because no one's seen the book, but maybe someday they will. The last proper illustration in the book, in the interior art, is this scene where the boy who's now a man or like a much older person is like in a meadow with his grandmother. And it's it, it mirrors or it echoes an illustration from earlier in the book. So it kind of makes sense. I was worried about that feeling like a schmaltzy note to end the book on. I felt like it wasn't quite schmaltzy because it did have this relationship with this earlier illustration, but that it, it was like there was something about leaving them like hugging in a field that felt like it wasn't really what the book wanted to be about because it wasn't, it's not like he comes home and he's like, oh, I get it. Love is my grandma. It's not that. It's like, oh, I get it. No one can tell you what love is. You just know it when you feel it. And also, I think because there's this, a lot of time goes by over the course of this book. So when he comes home to his grandma, she's really old. She's really Mm -hmm. old. She's very mortal, you know? So, like, I I think um, that last end paper, Andy, it's of them standing, the grandmother who's very old, the boy who's now a man, his dog who's no longer a puppy, and they're all on this hill under this very starry sky at night. Just kind of, She's like staring out into oblivion <laughs> and, her, and the kid is playing with his dog. And so it's this sort of moment where everyone gets to kind of contemplate what they think love is. And the grandmother, who I always imagine at this point is like 95 or something, she's probably got a lot to contemplate looking out into that starry expanse. And you will, you'll someday see the end papers and know what I'm talking about. That's, that's beautiful. I, I don't feel like there's been a many times that I've uh, welled up reading a picture book. And I know that I've never welled up listening to someone describe the end papers of a picture <laughs> book. So that's the first. Uh, Sweet. That is, yeah, I, oh, I love it. I, I have one other question. I want to be sensitive to your time. 
Uh, I don't know when this was. I feel like it's been some time now, but you, I think you both were part of the little picture book proclamation, which was some ideas around uh, good picture book making. One of the things that I do on the show pretty frequently is I talk about, I tell people, I encourage people and, and kind of share how I'm always trying to, with a in a living document, take a stab at like what my taste is. What, what do I define as good? And kind of give examples of like Sister Corita Kent with her, you know, student classroom rules or Dieter Rams with his uh, ideas of good design. Um, but I also like to say like, you know, you might want to explore one truth for half your career and then go the complete other side later. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's a living document. And you started this conversation, Mac, talking about, uh, you know, kids are, have, are a lot more fluid in their opinions and are quick to change their minds and they can know it's not true one second and then the next second be like, yeah, that's totally true. And I'm just wondering what, again, because this book is, feels a little bit of a, of a different kind of book for both of you. I'm wondering if there's anything from since you've been a part of that proclamation that you've been exploring the other side of or pushing back on or just, I don't know. I, I wonder if anything came to mind. Huh. That's a great question. That is a really good question. A little context on, on what the proclamation is. Uh, as, like, as you heard, like Carson and I do at the beginning of this podcast, like just at the drop of a hat, we are always ready to rail against... <laughs> Any sort of stifling, blinkered, didactic uh, bent in kids' books and kids' publishing. And, and I was doing that for like the millionth time with a, an old professor in college. And he was like, you know, you, you should like write a, a, an art manifesto for picture books. Um, and, you, and you should do it soon because, you know, you only have so many years that you can be an enfant terrible in, in, in an art form. And then it just, you know, you're... you're after that, you're a terrible old man by <laughs> definition, and nobody, nobody wants to do that. Uh, so I wrote down some thoughts on, on how to make good picture books, both as a writer, but as an editor, a publisher, how we market them, how, how we review them and, and, and talk about them, literary criticism in picture books, how, how we should think about them as parents. And I reached out to authors and illustrators who were making books um, that I admired and asked them if they would sign on to it, which was very nerve-wracking for me and I think uh, probably for a lot of the people who signed on because I'm not really a joiner by nature and I think that this was not a document for joiners. But, but we got a great crew of people who, whose work I admired and Carson... Um, Carson... <laughs> uh, got a little, some nice screens there. But Carson uh, hand-lettered and illustrated this document. And we put it out as an ad in the horn book. Hold on, let me just. <laughs> um, I could take over. Please do. Um, We're gonna leave all of that in there. That's very appropriate. I'm I, I'm very pro leaving it in. Please do. I'm not sure where to take over, but yeah. So we we put it as an ad in the horn book. Um, I'm not. I I do. This was ten years ago, by the way. Yeah, it's really this is the ten year anniversary. Wild, how much time has passed. And I've looked at it. You know, I bet I look at it every year or two. Um, and nothing in those years has jumped out at me as like, oh boy, that needs revising. Off the top of my head, I still feel like I stand by everything in it. There's a lot of attention to like. Taking, I, I, I feel like if you were going to boil it down to a couple things, you'd say that the main themes are taking child readers seriously and taking picture books as a literary and artistic form seriously and having there be robust criticism around it. Yeah, I think that like I've been looking at it too 10 years later and 10 years later, there's nothing for me. I was like, wow. I'm, ha I'm still proud of this. This holds up. It's still how I believe, you know, we should have a culture around making picture books and art for kids. I, I don't think that there's anything to me in this book that doesn't kind of comport with the, the ideas laid out in this proclamation. But some of that is because only part of the proclamation is about writing and illustrating books for kids. A lot of it is how, how we think about and, and interact with a literature for children. And... I think at the heart of it is is that like 
it's an expansive view of literature for children. It, sh it should be real art. It should, it should reflect the interests and the experiences and the tastes of the children who are reading it. It should be as rich and varied as literature for adults, but, but we should be conscious of the fact that, that also kids have a different experience of the world. What makes art for kids good is the same thing that makes art for adults good. It's, it's you know, the, if you take the, like the Keatsian formulation, truth and beauty, you want to tell the truth in a way that, for me, beautiful means... You know, stylistically, the, the approach should suit the, the truth that you're putting out. I think we need to be conscious of the fact that kids' experience of the, the world, their truths are not necessarily the truths of adults. It doesn't make them any less valid. But we are kind of crossing a gulf there, and we need to make sure that, that <laughs> the stories we tell and the books we make are rooted in a respect for kids, their intelligence, and their lives. And that to me doesn't seem like anything I'm, I'm ever going to be running away from. If there's nothing that you feel like, oh, I want to take that out, is there anything in the past 10 years of making books, stories that you would add in? Anything? It's so mind? funny. I think the proclamation was coming from a lot of directions. One was maybe 11 years ago now, there was a, a front page article uh, in the New York Times that, that declared the picture book dead. Um, and it said, like, teachers are running away from it, parents are running away from it, publishers are running away from it. Is, is the picture book even going to last? This was the front page. Nobody ever talks about picture books. Nobody ever talks about picture books in general interest media. It is not, it is not important. Here is the front page. This is our big look in the New York Times, and it's, it's an obituary. <laughs> that was frustrating to me, because um, I care deeply about the picture book. But... The, the reaction in the kids' book community was sort of falling back on, the picture book will never die. Picture books are magic. Reading is magic. And, and it was sort of a knee-jerk defense that didn't feel rigorous to me. Because picture books aren't magic. Good picture books are magic. And we need to spend time in our community thinking about, hey, how do we make sure we're putting out good stuff for kids? Um, and, and so it was in those two things. I think that, that also a big frustration to me goes back to the thing Carson was talking about earlier, this insistence that, that these be educational tools, that they are morally edifying or teach kids something, um, this insistence on the didactic, the pedantic, and the moralistic. And that was heavy. Ten years ago, at the time that I was writing this, I think that right now it's probably heavier than it was then. I don't think that, I, I think this, this insistence and this sort of, this very circumscribed view of what a kid's book should be is, is stronger now than in any other time that I've been writing. So that's still absolutely going on. Did you want to any, add to that at all, Carson? No, I okay. agree with all of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was very well put, especially from a guy holding a... Uh, cranky baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's well I, done. I completely agree, and I think uh, I think ultimately it just kind of goes back to what I said at the start. Both of you have continually inspired me to remember that it's art that we're making, and I think that that whole proclamation—that's what it feels like. It gets at to me is that don't forget, like making art for kids. You're not. It's not school. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not all these other. It's not. Sunday school, it's not any of these other things. We're making art for them in the same way that we want art for the richness of life. And, and, and I think it does that really well. Anybody that wants to go see it, I think it's the picturebook.co is you can dot co. See it. The picturebook.com was taken. So I got on that dot co beat. It was very big. 10 years ago, they were like, it's going to be huge. Everybody's going to be a dot co. And look at us now. <laughs> we're the only one. Yeah. All right. That I, Absolutely was thrilled to get to talk to you. And this was just um, so much of a pleasure. Um, uh, everybody should go check out the book. And thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all this and sharing your baby with us, Mac. Uh, th yeah, he was, he was excited to share. Thank you, forbearance <laughs> listeners, for hearing uh, my baby. You know, I feel like we didn't scream. It was more just a constant... Uh, yeah. It was a reminder just, for us not to forget about the kids as we're going through this, gold. as we're, you know, <laughs> talking about this in this, you know, high, high minded way. Don't forget the kids. And we didn't. 
all the way he through. He was like, nothing about <laughs> us without us. <laughs> Uh, I loved it. I loved it. I'm, I'm so. I'm just glad to have your time. Super appreciate it. All right, y'all just witnessed uh, a dream of mine. These these two were both on my dream interview list, lists for years and years. Two of my biggest creative heroes to chat with them in this way and really dig into the craft of picture books and, and stories. Um, I mean, it just, it, it was incredible. So, um, so pumped to be able to share um, their new book, What is Love? Go get it. Go get it right now. Phenomenal book. Um, just ah, the humanity in this book. I just loved in the writing. It's, woo! It's, it's the kind of story that I just obsess over. Um, thank you, Mac. Thank you, Carson. Um, hope we get to speak again soon. Massive shout out to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our jingle and and theme music and soundtrack. Huge shout out to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show. Uh, massive thanks to Ryan Appleton and, and Sophie, my wife, uh, Sophie Miller, a.k.a. Sophie Pizza. Um, and Katie Chandler for content assistance and, and assistance with the show. Until we speak again, do whatever it takes to stay pepped up.